Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Water, a necessary element to our survival, is expected to be pure and safe and clean when it comes out of the tap and into one's home. When it's polluted, the results can be extreme. The people in the town of Woburn, Massachusetts, just north and west of Boston, had an unusually high rate of cancer in the early 1970s. The town's water was contaminated with industrial pollutants. Several children and adults died, and many others became extremely ill. Their families sued the polluters in the United States District Court in Boston. Jonathan Haar, a nonfiction writer, followed the process and wrote a book called A Civil Action, which tells their story. A movie, also called A Civil Action, was based on the book and released at the end of 1998. I spoke with Jonathan Haar from his home in Massachusetts about a month after the movie was released and asked him how he was able to capture the events that led to his book and the subsequent movie, A Civil Action. How I was able to capture it, I'm not exactly sure myself. You know, um, the book took me eight and a half years to write. I was present for a lot of it. It's a technique that some people call um, immersion journalism. Some people in journalism schools call it that. Uh, I was there during the course of the trial and throughout the settlement, and then I spent a lot of time interviewing people about what what had occurred before, and I also followed um, the appeal process. So. Uh, I, I think that, um, actually, it's a very good question. I'm not exactly sure. I'd love, uh, part of it is just paying a lot of attention to detail, and part of it, I think, is a function of this kind of uh, immersion journalism that is actually being there. What you capture in terms of people is stuff that is otherwise ephemeral, very evanescent. It's dialogue. You capture interactions between people. When I was in the office, for example, after court in Schlickman's office and watching his partners prepare the case, I got to know him really well and got a, and also got a lot of material for, for my book because I was watching them debate what to do next, and that was true throughout the settlement process and throughout the appeal process. And you would also uh, participate, have a meal with them, or just hang out with them during the brainstorming session? All the time. I was there as much as I could possibly physically be there. I couldn't really even keep pace, though, with, uh, with Jan Schlickman, who um, seemed to sleep very little and seemed to work all the time. But I was there as much as I could. Um, I went to meals, and, and um, uh, when Schlickman uh, lost his, uh, his home, his Beacon Hill duplex, and had to move into the uh, office, um, I moved into the office with him. He was sleeping on a fold-out couch in his, uh, his office, and I was sleeping... Uh, one room away in Kevin Conway's office on a fold-out couch. Um, he didn't have much money, and I didn't have much money either. I'd run out of my advance. So I was really about as close as you could get, I think, to your source. Um, so you needed to be there for economic reasons as well? Yeah. It, well, it certainly made it easier on me uh, to be there. And also, I wanted to be there. I wanted to be, I wanted to be as close to him and uh, kind of take the measure of what he was going through as much as I possibly could. But in terms of participation, I mean, I'd go out to meals with him, uh, but but I didn't really say very much. I never kind of entered into it 
as a participant. You were the recorder, the silent observer. Exactly, and it's a position I'm very comfortable with. I'm much more of an observer in life than I am an actor, a doer. And, and that's why I think the book is more of a story than it is, um, than it, than it is uh, you know, a crusading for a cause. I'm not a big crusader for, for any cause. Did any of the participants on the other side, the attorneys for the other side, uh, question why you were there? Um, did they know no. why you were there? They did not know the extent to which I was there. I mean, the extent to which I was in um, in Schlickman's office and with the uh, with Kevin Conway and Bill Crowley and his, his other the other people who brought the case. The other side simply didn't know it, and I didn't volunteer it. I was in the courtroom every day during the course of the trial, and I was present for all of the hearings that occurred after the trial. Um, and actually, the judge made fun of me once. It's in the transcripts. What did he say? The ubiquitous Mr. Har, he said, is not here today. And I turned up a few minutes later as, <laughs> as, it, as it happened. Um, but they didn't. I was, when I began working on this, I was working for a magazine, New England Monthly. And I wasn't certain that, it, that I could turn it into a book. Um, I wasn't certain whether I wanted to, in fact. Uh, as, and as time went on, I became more certain of that fact. But initially, I started out, um, I was still getting paid by the magazine, and I thought if it didn't turn into a book, then I would make it into a magazine piece. And the other lawyers, uh, Jerry Fasher and Neil Jacobs, uh, who both represented Beatrice Foods, and um, Bill Cheeseman and uh, Michael Keating, uh, who represented W.R. Grace, they knew uh, I was sitting there in the courtroom on a in one of those uh, gallery seats where there were a couple of other journalists sitting. So they knew that I was there and I was writing about it. What happened that uh, caused the book, The Civil Action, to be made into a movie? What was the turning point? Boy, you got me. It's a complete mystery. I never, although I was accused of writing it after the fact, when the book was, it, it was, the movie rights of the book were purchased when it was still in manuscript book was published in September of 1995, and the uh, film rights were purchased by Robert Redford in March of 95. So when the book came out, it was well known that it had, the film rights had been purchased. It, it Actually, there was an article in the New York Times about it, and uh, the two reviews I got in the New York Times basically accused me of writing it for the movies using, you know... Um, uh, writing it as a thriller, which is what I wanted to do, but I had the, <laughs> I had utterly no expectation that that it would uh, appeal to the movies because it was a complicated tale and there were two defendants and the plaintiffs, the Woburn families, never took the witness stand. I mean, I just didn't even dream that the movies would be interested. Um, how it came about was kind of puzzling. My agent, my literary agent in New York, had an affiliation with a Hollywood agent. Um, a guy named Robert Wunsch, whom I'd never met, I'd never even talked to over the telephone, he read the manuscript, and his opinion of it, he was, um, he didn't think that it would likely be sold to the movies, he told me, uh, when I first talked with him. He thought that maybe a made-for-TV movie, but there was nothing he could do, he would have to wait until the book came out, and I had no expectations of it. Um, but then suddenly interest started growing, for reasons I don't fully understand even today. What was your role in creating the movie? Um, almost none. They just took it from the manuscript? Yeah. I did, um, on the, my first book tour, the book was published, as I said, in September of 95. 
on the book tour, I went to Los Angeles, and uh, I met with the producer who worked for Redford. Redford was the producer and the executive producer. Um, but the woman who was actually responsible for buying the manuscript worked for Redford, and her name is Rachel Pfeffer. She's a producer of her, on her own, um, but she was then working for Redford. And uh, I met with her, and she introduced me to Steve Zalian, who was a screenwriter. Zalian had, uh, was well-known in, in Hollywood. He's fairly young. He's in his uh, early 40s. Um, he'd written the screenplay for Schindler's List, and he'd done a, the screenplay and directed a wonderful movie called Searching for Bobby Fischer. He'd done the screenplay for Awakenings. He'd won an Oscar. He'd been nominated twice for an Oscar and won once. Um, and I met him, and he and I just kind of hit it off right away. Um, I just liked him a lot, and, uh, and I guess it was reciprocated because we spent quite a bit of time talking. When I sold the film rights to the book, it was um, I did not want... I mean, I'd already spent eight and a half years on it. I emphatically did not want to spend another huge block of time writing the screenplay. And moreover, I didn't know how to write a screenplay. I'd never even read one in my life. Um, so I figured this, you know, this was somebody else's job. And um, when I met Steve, it was just kind of wonderful. I mean, um, we got along really well. We talked a lot about about the book and about Schlickman and about the kind of the arc of the narrative, which is the thing he was mostly interested in. And um, he wrote, I think, five or six drafts of the screenplay before they had a shooting script. And uh, he sent me each one, and we talked about each one, um, but I never actually put word to page. So I didn't consider that I had any formal role at all. I certainly had no veto power. Well, it probably goes without saying that uh, the book accurately characterizes what happened. Do you think the movie does? I think, you know, it's a good question. The first question is, is does the book accurately characterize it? I believe so. That's why I say it goes without saying, because you're the author. <laughs> but, um, you know, there are other, there were a lot of people involved in this, and, and the reception, the their reception of the book, that is, the reception of the lawyers on the opposite side of the case who represented the, the companies. I mean, the book is largely sympathetic to the families and largely is told through the viewpoint of the plaintiff's lawyer, Jan Schlickman. And you might think that the uh, Jerry Fasher, who represented Beatrice Foods, or Bill Cheeseman, who represented W.R. Grace, would disagree with it. And I think they do take issue with some parts of it, although they, they agree that it's largely accurate. Um, it, but it, um, conceding that it's told through uh, the perspective of Jan Schlickman. Um, um, so you've had recent contacts with the principals on both I sides. I talk to them all the time. I mean, they were all at the premiere of the movie, which happened in Boston on January 7th. So I saw them there. Um, I talked to Schlickman on a regular basis. I talked to Jerry Fasher not so often. Uh, I talked, saw the Woburn families there. Um, um, but but the, to the issue of whether the movie is an accurate representation or even whether the book is, I feel that the book is. Jerry Fasher once said something very interesting. He was standing on the movie set. This was it was they were on location uh, in the Boston area, a town called Waltham, and they were recreating the movie company was recreating this drilling scene that happened on the 15-acre property. And uh, Fasher was there, and Schlickman was there, too. They were seeing each other for the first time. And, and, and Jerry, who's a very charming, very funny man, but and a hell of a good lawyer, too, a ruthless lawyer, um, 
kind of was squinting around the place, and he said to me, you know, this is four degrees separated from reality. And I, I said, how, how do you mean that? And he said, well, first there was the event, then there was the trial about the event, then there was your book based on the trial about the event, and now there's the movie based on the book based on the trial about the event. Uh, and what he was saying, I think, is that each degree of separation, you're further from um, what he was implying, I believe, was that at each degree of separation, you're further from, from the essence of it, uh, acknowledging then that the trial was you know, a, a, just a faint representation of the real event. And the book was, the book is 500 pages long, and it condenses a decade of events into that 500 pages. And the movie is two hours long, and it condenses a 500-page book, which condenses a decade of, of uh, events. I think that, you know, in the end, I think that the movie is, is very faithful to the arc of Schlickman's story. Jonathan, I want to ask you a little more about Jerry Fasher and his observations. But first, I want to tell our listeners that I'm talking this week with Jonathan Haar, who wrote a book that became a movie that is called The Civil Action, about a true set of circumstances in Woburn, Massachusetts, where well water was poisoned and there was a cancer cluster and many people uh, died and others suffered severe maladies. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Jonathan, uh, what was Jerry Fasher's uh, response to uh, the movie and to what was done? I don't think he anticipated this would occur when he was delivered the complaint from Schlickman's office, as we see in the movie and in one of the opening scenes. You don't think he anticipated that that what? That, that there would be a book and there would be a movie and that it would be a real story about him as one of the uh, characters. I think uh, nobody anticipated that, and certainly nobody anticipated, uh, nobody anticipated that the book would be very successful, and uh, it's been quite successful. Um, Jerry likes to tell the story to people who ask that uh, he kept telling me to go on and do something else, you know, because who'd want to read a book about um, toxic waste and dying children and a lawsuit that drags on and on? Um, and I, I sometimes thought he was right. Nobody anticipated. I mean, the movie is, is many, many times bigger than the book, and that's just the way our world works. You know, movies and Hollywood and television are now the cultural medium of, of this country, not books so much, or at least the popular cultural medium. Um, the movie has done pretty well. It's been out for three weeks, and I think it's grossed over $40 million, and it's got a ways to go yet. So it's a successful movie, and that means that, you know, five or six million people have seen this movie. Um, and I, you know, I can't, I don't know how many people have read the book, but it's sold maybe a million and a half copies. So it's an order of magnitude um, greater, the movies. Nobody certainly anticipated that it would become a, a movie. Well, Fasher teaches law or taught law at Harvard Law School, and I understand that uh, the book, The Civil Action, is now being used in some uh, law school classes. Yeah, it's being used in quite a few law school classes. He doesn't teach law anymore. Um, I don't know if he'd use it if he did. Maybe he would. Um, he taught trial practice. Uh, That's certainly what the book covers. Yeah, it does. Um, I'd, I'd be... I, I would hope that he'd use it. I'm actually seeing him uh, this Friday, 
and Saturday, along with uh, Jan Schlickman and, and some of the Woburn families, is a symposium at, at Harvard. Uh, the Harvard Law School and Harvard Business School are conducting this symposium. Arthur Miller is moderating it, and it's about uh, the book and the movie and the case. Um, so it continues to go on in, in law schools. You say you're not a crusader for causes, um, but you're certainly at the forefront of bringing this issue to the nation's attention. Yeah, I think that that's largely um, accidental. Um, I, I, I am not an environmental zealot of, of any measure. In fact, I didn't consider myself to be when I began this. Uh, I mean, I cared about clean water and clean air as, as much as the next person, but I didn't consider myself to be, uh, you know, an environmentalist of any great passion. What I, the reason I just wanted to write about it was because I was offered something very unusual for writers, for journalists, and that was the kind of access that behind the scenes, watching how a law firm operates in a big and difficult case. And that seemed to me very appealing. Moreover, the characters were interesting. There was a mystery at the heart of the, of, the, of, the, of the case and of the story, and mysteries are always wonderful devices to, for narratives. Um, and there was lots of conflict, which is another ingredient of narratives. Um, so for all of, and there were very interesting characters. I mean, Jan Schlickman was, was um, who was the guy who was making all of this happen, happen was uh, fascinating to me. So it was more the opportunity than the issue. Oh, it was absolutely the opportunity. Had I not been granted the access that Schlickman um, ended up granting, uh, I, and the Woburn families, by the way, were complicit in that. They agreed to it. Um, had I not been granted that access, I would never have written about this. It wasn't the issue. Uh, it, it was in small part the issue. I mean, I wanted to write about something that, was, that had some kind of uh, importance. Importance may be too big a word, uh, but... But I wanted to write about something that was going to touch on, on, on an issue that was important to us as a society. Um, I didn't want to write about something that was completely frivolous. Um, the, the, the question is, is, how do you approach it? And my, my approach is, first of all, to look for a story that I can tell. And my approach basically is, you know, you find the story, you, it, it seems important in some way, but, um, and then you write it, and then you find out what it, what it all means. If, you know, if in fact it means anything at all, one hopes it does. So what do you think about what you've done? Um, Writing a book that's become a movie that has told a true story that in many ways affects us all in every little community throughout North America and probably the world. I'm pretty astonished. Uh, you know, it's kind of like it's the law of unintended consequences. I, um, the consequences have been very good. Uh, I'm glad. I'm I'm uh, I'm gratified that the book is regarded in that way, um, but I have to confess, in in all um, humility, I guess, that I didn't set out to do it necessarily. So, what's the effect been of this event on your life? Well, for me personally, it's been fairly dramatic. Um, you know, I went from being an unknown writer to somebody um, who who gets I constantly get requests for. Um, writing blurbs on book jackets, for example. I guess that's a measure of success in the book world. I get sent manuscripts and people want to ask if I would write a blurb. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful kind of recognition. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, it's, it's great to have. And what it means for me is that I am free to do 
essentially whatever I want, um, whatever project I feel like undertaking, I, I, it's clear that I can do it. Um, I guess that was true before, but before it was on an incredible shoestring. I mean, the, the, um, the financial costs of doing this book, of writing it for me, were, were pretty tremendous because it took a very long time and my advance um, didn't even begin to, to cover that. It allowed you to move into an office in Boston. Yeah, that's why I don't have an office in Boston. <laughs> right. I still yeah. have an office at home. Yeah. Life hasn't changed very dramatically in a lot of ways. Well, if you're free to undertake any project that, that you want now, what would your dream project be? Well, that's, that's, I'm asking myself that question all the time. Are you getting any answers? In some respects, it was easier to fall into something and not know where it was going to take you than to try that the stakes are now higher for me, it seems. You know, I have to figure out what I want to do, first of all, rather than bump into what I want to do. And secondly, I have to wonder if it's got all of the ingredients to, to work. I mean, given the kind of work that I do, that is getting involved in a story in the middle of it, um, it has both great benefits and, and great drawbacks. The benefits, uh, you know, are, are the things that I was talking about earlier. The, you know, you get dialogue and you get, you get real-time action and you can record that. The drawbacks are that you don't know where it's going to go. You don't know what path it's going to take and whether it'll end up um, being suitable for a story. So, You don't know till you've done it, but with the immersion journalism concept, uh, perhaps uh, you can find a story. I don't know. I ask you this in, in your experience as a professor of nonfiction writing. Um, if you're in a situation that doesn't really create a story uh, while you're living it, can it be created into a story after the fact? Well, that's a very interesting problem. I think that some people can do that. I'm not very good at it. I really rely upon these kind of uh, benchmarks of storytelling. Um, I think that, for example, I need characters, I need an event around which characters come together, or I really can't, can't write. I mean, I'm, I'm all, I seem to be psychologically incapable of writing about uh, an idea, just an idea alone, or a, a, a large subject like, um, you know, I couldn't imagine, for example, writing about the causes of the Civil War. I'd, I'd want real characters to, I'd want characters to follow. Um, characters who you've met and who you've had lunch with and shared an office with. Well that always helps. I mean obviously if you're writing about the Civil War you can't do that. Yeah. And I've given some thought to, to writing uh, an historical um, study. I, I don't know how much it would be quite a bit different than, than what I've done so far. I'm going to stick with what I've done so far. But the ideal story, I mean, I, I am, have been searching around for a while in, in the world of medical research. And another benefit of, um, of this book being successful and there being a movie made out of it is that I, it provides me with an introduction to a lot of people um, I wouldn't otherwise get introduced to. And that is um, the, the director of research for Massachusetts General Hospital and the, and the dean of the School of um, Public Health and uh, the Harvard School of Public Health. So I've been in Boston um, talking to quite a few people about uh, about an idea concerning medical research, and I'm still uh, looking, but um, I have several prospects. I can see that that's a topic that uh, is wide open as people discuss 
what has occurred in the past 100 years yeah. and what, what to, to forecast in the next uh, century. It's developing with incredible rapidity, um, but it has for the last century. Um, I mean, if you'd been there when Marie Curie was discovering radiation, x-rays, or if you'd been there when, uh, when Louis Pasteur uh, was at work, it would have been, you know, just wonderful kinds of stories. So, and you would have had another book. Yeah, or, you know, Jonas Salk. I mean, these people have all been written about, but, you know, there are stories all over the place. Well, Jonathan Haar, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about a book that you've been reading recently. I actually have been reading several, but um, one that interests me quite a bit that I picked up the other day is one by Janet Malcolm, who writes often about journalism. She writes for The New Yorker, and the title of the book is The Crime of Sheila McGow. And it goes to, um, to the heart of something that I am interested in, which is, and that also it deals with the courtroom and with lawyers, and, and the subject is essentially uh, the incompatibility of narrative and truth. That is, that any time you take a given set of facts, you can weave uh, virtually any kind of story around that, that set of facts. Uh, and which, which story is true, or is there a story that is true? I think the issue is, is that once you begin to tell a story, you take an event, set of facts, and you begin to tell a story, um, that immediately any storyteller has biased, that, that story will be biased. And it's essentially what an editor of mine at The New Yorker calls the bias of coherence, and that is to make something clear, to assemble those facts in an orderly fashion so that you can tell someone else about uh, that event. Uh, when you, the minute you begin assembling those facts, you, you have biased the story in some way. Simply the act of assembling the facts uh, and to tell a story creates a bias. Do you feel that you did that in writing a civil action? Well, I tried to be faithful, uh, as faithful as I possibly could uh, to the events as I understood them and as I saw them. I cannot pretend to know every event that went on, and it, a lot of it depends upon your vantage point. I mean, I was seeing this, the Woburn case, through Schlickman's eyes. Um, had I been with Jerry Fasher in his office. He works for a very big law firm, Hale & Dorr, employs several hundred lawyers, um, and represented Beatrice Foods. Had I been in his office and seeing the story through his eyes, his perspective on it, it would have been a much different story. Well, Jonathan Haar, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you very much, Barry. Jonathan Haar is the author of the book, A Civil Action that was made into a movie. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. 
Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.